Welcome back. I have a very good friend of mine from back in medical school. So Dr. Paul Mashad is a radiologist. We were at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences, and we both finished in 2004. One, which both dates us, and two, it's, I'm sure you've probably not heard of this school, and that's okay. It's the only military medical school we have, and it was a fantastic school, and I've met some amazing people. Paul is one of them. So we've now crossed paths again as we're doing very similar work and so I wanted to invite him on because he's got some really remarkable stories. So first, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a diagnostic radiologist, uh, fellowship trained in nuclear medicine. As you said, was a student with you at Uniformed Services University, did my training at Walter Reed, then went on to serve in the military for a number of years to include not only staying clinically relevant as a radiologist, but also a number of leadership positions. Yes. And I think you've learned so much in your leadership positions and you've shared a lot of these things on LinkedIn. So I'm really excited for you to share some of your perspectives with us. So I know that you took a position as a chief medical officer. Tell us why did that position attract you? What were you looking for in that position? I think like many people who aspire to leadership positions, it's to be the leader that you always wanted to have, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I think that was my drive. I, I never went into the military aspiring for that. However, I, I was performing well, maybe got some lucky breaks. People recognized some leadership qualities in me. And so opportunities came up. And so I started to take those and started with something simple, chief of nuclear radiology, then chief of radiology, then it was assistant chief medical officer, and then chief medical officer. And then the other thing I'll say is this happened at a relatively junior point in my career. And the reason why that's important is it could have gone very poorly, but it didn't. And the reason why it didn't is I had incredible leaders around me that instead of looking at the fact that I was a junior physician or leader, they evaluated me on my competence. And I'm sure you can appreciate that in the military, but what, what this would look like is I'd be in the C-suite or on the credentials committee or whatever committee you're talking about. It would be 13 colonels and me as the major, but never once did I feel looked down upon despite that I didn't have the experience. And in fact, I think it was just the opposite they recognize I didn't have the experience and their response was, we're going to help you. I can't even tell you how many meetings I'd be in the meeting for a first time and I'd have no idea what protocol was, no idea like how to conduct myself or whatever. And I'd have the, the colonel next to me and they'd be passing me notes or whispering in my ear, like how to, how to address this. Or if they could see me floundering initially, the, the, they would jump in. And, and what would happen over time is after six months of doing that, you know, I figured it out. But you don't know that the first time you're in the meeting. So I was very grateful to really have great mentors who, again, didn't see me based on my rank, but perhaps what I could offer the organization. I completely agree. I think the military is really great about that, about offering great leadership examples, but also giving us a chance to uh, lead and excel beyond maybe when we think we're ready. But of course, the truth is we never feel quite ready. It's great that we have some people there helping. So tell me what your goal was as a CMO, and then how did that show up um, in other people's response to you? Sure. So I think... 
my primary goal was to be seen as a leader that was going to help my people get their job done in the most effective way possible. I guess the best way I can explain this is the first, I would say, month I got to the organization, I was committed to meeting all the people that I was responsible for taking care of. And that was that was a lot. We're talking a few hundred people. And so the way that I decided to do this was... I worked with my assistant to schedule lunch with everybody. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me because for me, this was a very meaningful thing. I was excited about it. I was excited to get to know my people. That was not the experiences that was reciprocated back to me. I remember almost to the person reading how anxious they were. And usually the first question they would ask would be something like, why am I here? What did I do wrong? I love it that the first impression you got from people was, I'm in trouble, right? I'm getting called to the principal's office. And that's ex- and literally there was one, one of the most talented physicians. That's exactly what she said. She said, I've never been to the principal's office before. And that really, I think, made me step back and reflect on, well, first of all, I misjudged the situation right? Like I, I thought I was doing the, this great thing and, and I, I was doing something good. However, that's not the way it was perceived. But that also, I think, suggests that there was a bigger problem, which is that I understand the way that maybe I'm being viewed and now it's on me to change that. And I think with time I did. And one of the ways that I did that is that's exactly, I mean, certainly getting to know them as a person was one of my primary goals, but then in the context of a hospital, how can I help you do your job better? What are the day-to-day frustrations that you have that you wish you didn't have that we can actually do something about? The other thing is I'm I'm a pretty practical person. I know my hospital systems really well, and I know what we can do and I know what we can't do. So sometimes things would come up and I would just be as honest as I could say, hey, that's not something that I can control. However, if there is something I can control, I will bulldog that like nobody else to help you. And so once the conversation started heading that direction, believe me, everything I just said, that took a couple months to do. (laughs) I think they started viewing me a little bit differently. And you gave this great example of something that you heard and that you ran with that I know was a little bit outside the box thinking. So take us through this pediatrician that you talked to about her clinic experience and how you changed that. So one thing I learned, and and maybe this was through my own frustrations, is autonomy is so important. And I want to be very careful to to use the word autonomy specifically and not independence. I think those are two very different things. We can get into that at some point. But I do think autonomy is critical. And in the process of saying, what are the frustrations you have on a daily basis? She had said, I have no control over my schedule. And I'll use the word you because that's the word she used. But what she really meant is the the C-suite, us, we dictate what her schedule looks like. So as a pediatrician, I think she had 20-something, 15-minute appointments every single day. And so when she brought this up, I said, well, what would that look like? What would something different look like? And she said, well, maybe I'll give you an example. She's like, I know I can do a follow-up ear infection in five minutes, but it has to be 15 minutes. I have no choice. She said, I know for a new ADHD eval, I need a half hour to 45 minutes. 
but I have to do it in 15 minutes. I have no choice. So on both sides, we're not being effective. Right. And I said, okay, well, what does that look like? She's like, well, let me schedule my patients. Let me schedule my time. Let me schedule at five minute intervals. And my commitment to you is, you know how productive I've been on the every 15 minute schedule. Why don't we just see what happens if I'm allowed to control my schedule and track my productivity. And if I'm wrong, then we just try something new or we bail. And I was like, hey, that that seems like a best case scenario. And that's what we did. And the bottom line is she blew every provider out of the water. Yeah. And it's just a fantastic story because another thing that can happen too, I think, especially at the C-suite level, and I always fought against this because I I just don't have this mentality, but it's it's that, oh, providers don't want to work. That is not true. That I mean, maybe anything's true 1% of the time, but 99% of the time, that's not true. It's very unlikely that someone who has went through, gone through the incredible lengths to become who they are as a physician, that they don't want to work. It's just, it's just not true. They're frustrated by the system that bogs them down. And those right. are the things that tire them out and frustrate them. And so they're not as they're not as effective as they could be. And it's just amazing just turning over a little autonomy to her markedly changed her productivity. And oh, by the way. Not only did it change her productivity, the biggest win is she felt satisfied now. Yes. So, right. So now we have the best win just looking at it from the C-suite perspective. We not only have a productive provider, but a satisfied provider. And now that feeds itself, right? So now she's going to want to do more because she feels like, hey, I'm doing what I want and I know I'm doing good things for the house. It's a win for everybody. But that, that's just, I think that's a small example of how really trusting the people that we have. Another way that I look at this as a leader, and, and this might be rare, I don't know how, I don't know many radiologists who decide to go into leadership, but that gives me a strong sense of humility simply because I do not pretend to know what you do as a general surgeon, right? I do not pretend to know what it's like to deal with an OR schedule, to deal with your clinic schedule. So my assumption is that you do. Mm -hmm. So why would I, as your CMO, control your schedule? I don't have the information that you have. You're the expert in your clinic. Run your clinic. Do Mm -hmm. good things. And if there are issues that are getting in your way, my job is to help get those out of the way if I can do that. Yes. And we were talking before about one of the characteristics that make us good physicians, keep us from doing this which is to first admit, I don't actually know what the best solution for your clinic is. I don't and, and know. And I think something. that's why I brought up the idea of, of humility. And, and I think there is some arrogance involved to think that I know better than you for your clinic. Now, I will also say that doesn't mean I don't have good ideas, right? So one thing I was very fortunate about too, is I was also the Uh, consultant to the Surgeon General in my specialty. And what that means for those who aren't familiar with the military process is we would um, not only advocates for our specialty to the Surgeon General, but we'd also go around to different hospitals and make sure that each of the hospitals were resourced appropriately to meet their mission. And if they're not, we, we helped with that. So another part about that is, and and one thing that's pretty unique about radiology is while I may not be an expert in everyone's area, I know a lot about everyone's area because essentially when you get imaging, you're consulting me to help you solve a problem. And we're working together to do that. 
So with those two things combined as consultants seeing how a lot of different hospitals function, as well as just a perspective as, as, as a radiologist, I realized I did have something to offer. Doesn't mean I'm an expert in your area. But I think the key there was once my teammates and I started to realize, like, I'm not trying to dictate what you're doing. I, I They truly understood that I'm trying to be a facilitator of what can help them not only be productive, but also have a, how do I say this? If you think about how much time we spend at work, if you're miserable at work, you're going to have a miserable life. There's almost no way to get around that. So one thing that was always in the back of my mind is how can I, if, if I can be a person that somehow helps work to be a little bit more enjoyable for that person, it's also going to be a win too. If we're fulfilled personally, it's going to be reflective of all areas of our life, usually to include our work. So that was another thing that was very important to me. But back to the idea of they, I think as they started to learn me, I would interject certain ideas. And I think the sense of humility was then reciprocated. They started to realize, because the other thing I would get sometimes, and this is probably fair, this guy's a radiologist. What does he know? Perfectly fair, right? Like, I mean, I, I get that. But I think as we learned each other, they realized that we we both had a common understanding and they learned that truly my goal was for us all to be fulfilled and us all to be productive, whatever that means. And once we had that common goal, now when I brought something up, they'd be much, they, it wouldn't be, hey, this is, this is some radiologist who sits in a dark room, has no idea what I go through. They started to realize, no, I, this guy does have some pretty good perspectives on things. And so then it became uh, a team effort. And I thought that was very meaningful for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where sometimes we go wrong, especially when we are the physician that you described of coming like, why does he want to talk to me when, you know, I've done something wrong, which of course shuts somebody down. And there's nothing to, to talk about when you're kind of trapped in fear and worry. So if I could stop you here, here's something else I learned. I, I haven't thought about this until now, but I told you when I started to have these meetings and, and this presented in other ways. So but when I started having these meetings, I realized that people were coming at me with from a place of fear. And so then I realized now it's on me to change that, right? So I'll give you another example. And I think a lot of people have had this experience. You get a call or you get an email from your boss. And maybe that email is very nonspecific and just says, hey, come, come meet me or something like that. Or a text, hey, come see me. Even if I know that's well-intentioned, that can be absolutely terrifying, right? So what I learned to do is if I'm going to eat, I will never, what's the word? I'll never blindside someone. I was committed to never doing that. I was always committed to being upfront and letting people know, hey, I'm not going to pretend a meeting. I, I hope no one has had this experience, but I know people have. Pretend a meeting is about one thing and then drop a bomb on them at the end. That is, nobody wants that. That, that creates terror. That's probably a traumatic experience in itself because that's probably why nobody wants to go come see the CMO. No one wants to go see the CMO anymore. And so I made it a point to, even as something as simple as texting someone, if it was a, a colleague like that, I would say, so I might say, hey, do you have time to come see me? I want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. 
And the moment I did that, all the anxiety goes down, right? Because right. now it's like, hey, I want to talk to you about getting together for lunch just to shoot the breeze sometime this week versus what runs through their head when it's just, hey, come see me. Oh, gosh, there's a risk management case. Oh, God, you, you have no idea. And so that's another, and I think I probably learned this just from my own experiences of having those emails or texts or calls directed towards me and the terrifying experience that I had for the hour. It's like, oh, yeah. oh gosh, I got to go meet the boss at the end of the day. What's this going to be about? Right. So that's an example of kind of being the leader that I, I wish I had. I, I think I really tried to put myself in the other person's shoes. And even though I know what I'm about as a leader, particularly early on, they don't know that about me. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what past experiences they have had with other leaders. So what's my responsibility? Address that. And so I would, again, that's how I decide to address it. I would, my commitment to them was you are always going to know why I'm reaching out to you. And my promise is I'm never going to reach out to you to blindside. Never, ever. <laughs> it's acknowledging the fact that we all have the tendency to mind read. <laughs> and what someone, when someone reaches out to us and says something that what it does is bring up all the things we're already thinking about. So a lot of times people will attribute that to the person sending the message, but really th these were things that were in our head that we were worried about. And we think it's the other person that's bringing this up, but it's it's not. And so that was a really great way to avoid that, that natural tendency that we have, which is to fear for the worst. Now, we didn't talk about the scenario, but I'm curious at your perspective because I have my own ideas. So let's say that there's a conflict in the department where the write-up culture, if you would, <laughs> I'm sure you probably were on the receiving end of some people saying, you know, a write-up of some sort, this person did this. How do you manage that when someone comes and raises something and you have your own opinions about this? How do you approach that situation in that perspective? Does that make sense? So I think, I do think it does make sense. And I think these are things that you you deal with all the time in in leadership. So I often think, so first of all, I think there are a couple of ways that I problem solve these things. N number one, I, I never try to assume that I understand the situation fully. So initially, I, I think I would try to avoid making a snap judgment, no matter what I, I might feel, how much I think I know about it. I think I would avoid that. And are you specifically talking about like a conflict between two people or? Correct. Yes. The, the write-up culture. And I know that a lot of people think that it means something. My perspective is a complaint generates paper, paper has to go away. How does the paper go away? I got you. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, what is, so here's the other thing I try to do. And this can be true with, with almost anything, right? It's what is behind what is going on? So what is, what is behind the complaint? And then what is the goal? Do we want is the goal to what I think is ultimately the goal at the end is so here, here's, here's one thing I often think of with any important relationship is my goal to be right. Or is my goal to be effective? And you know, that's, a, that's a huge ego check for me um, because number one, it assumes that I know what right is and that may or may not be true. Right. 
But I think ultimately, if we're going to try to solve a problem, the goal is to get to some understanding. And then the goal is to be better as, as an organization. So when it comes to, for example, I'll give you an example. I think this might apply and tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure what they would call them it, your organizations, but we had things, patient safety reports, for example. Right. And th- that's kind of what I think of when I think of write-ups. And I found both as, and then so t- two roles, both as chief of radiology, as well as chief medical officer, these would come to me, whether they would be in my department as chief of radiology, or if they were more higher level, they would come to me a- a- as CMO. I started to realize that people were using these reports almost in ways that they shouldn't be used, whether it be to for personal grudges or even to address problems not related to what the complaint was about. But you only tend to appreciate that if you don't make a snap judgment and you really try to dig down deeper into what's going on. The way that I always looked at patient safety reports is, and and the other thing that can happen is, especially as a leader, I think you, you used a good term, make the paperwork go away. If I had my ideal situation, I would want as many patient safety reports being filed as possible. And, and let me tell you wh- why, why I go there. Because if the true intent is to get better and not to punish, then these reports, whenever something goes wrong, I know as a leader, things are going to go wrong in a hospital. I know they are, right? If I don't know about those things, I can't address them. I can't help others to address them. I can't get help with them. Right. And I think what happens so many times with these reports is they get a negative stigma. And I'll tell you why they do, because here's often the response. There's a patient safety report. I call up the person involved and I yell at them. How many times will they ever put in a patient safety report again? Never. None. It's done. I've completely shut down communication with them. Right. But now if the patient safety report is about, hey, it's getting better, it's not a punitive process. Right. So best case scenario. And again, this is a different way that I I guess I might say this is, well, I'll relate this to a story. The different hospitals. And this is more of a sixth sense type of thing that you learn over time. But one of the biggest ways I would I could literally identify within, I would say, the first hour of getting to an organization, what the leadership was like is if I would ask a question like this. Hey, what would you want to improve in the organization? If there were crickets, I knew there were problems, Hmm. right? So silence in my feeling is silence in relationships is rarely a good, right? It's, it's usually a sign that people, and this can be personal relationships. This can be professional. This can be organizational, right? If there's silence, it's not that there are no problems. It's that the people are afraid to bring up problems. And the reason they're afraid to bring up problems is likely because the leadership handles those problems in a very punitive way. Super simple. So if your goal as a leader is to get as many pieces of paper as possible, which means you probably are going to get the personal grudges and the things like that. How did you manage those? And what was your approach as leader? So I think the bigger picture 
goes back to kind of like those lunch meetings. Once they realized that my goal was not to be punitive, that opened up a lot of communication. Once they realized, so let, let me give you an example. So let's take that same conversation with that pediatrician. That could have gone very differently, right? So she could have said, she could have said, hey, I'm really struggling with these every 15 minutes appointment appointments. I think I could be more efficient this way. I could have said, hey, I have four of your colleagues right here. They have that same exact schedule and they're more productive than you. Yeah. She would have never brought me a problem again. That's true. Right. And the point there is, and this brings up another point, not everybody functions the same under the same model. That's the whole point of back to that autonomy that is giving the provider the power to create what's best for them. And as long as it's productive and long, as long as they're satisfied, it's good. So, or I'm good with it as a leader, but back to this. So it's, it's the same way. So let's just, let, let me use a different analogy. Maybe let's, let's put it to personal relationships. If you have, if you have an issue and you bring it to me, Amy, and I respond in a way that shames you or degrades you or what you're never going to bring a problem to me at, at that point again. But if you bring that to me and I can respond with a sense of actually gratitude, because I probably realized that was a really difficult thing for you to bring forward. That was probably really hard for you to say, right? How do I know that? Because I would imagine if I would say that back to you, that would be hard for me to say, right? So I think once, once that idea of airing your concerns once that idea, and for lack of a better term, I said, once that becomes safe and it's no longer a punitive environment, I think it opens up so many more possibilities, right? And I'm not going to sit here and say I solved that problem and did it perfectly. But what I can say is I sense that as I responded as a problem-solving leader, as opposed to a leader that was trying to be punitive and make paperwork go away, right? That, that had a cascade effect. And then people did start telling me problems. Another way to look at it is once I addressed one problem effectively, the person learned to trust. So like, hey, Paul really handled this better than I thought he would. I'm gonna bring up something else to him and let's see, let's see how that works. And then that just feeds the relationship. But I think ultimately behind that is it's if someone has had or if there is a culture of punitive response to concerns or problems, that has to be changed first. And until the staff and, and your teammates understand that that's not your goal, your goal is to be more effective not to be punitive because I can understand what it looks like from the, from the leadership level too. Right. So for example, as a CMO, I could imagine my boss would be like, Hey Paul, why do you have so many patient safety reports under your area of responsibility? Right. Just imagine that like on a tally sheet, it could be like, Oh, well, well the, the CNO and the, who, who's the other, the, the CFO, they, they, they have no issues And Paul, you have all these issues. But it's just a different mindset. And, and for me, I was fine taking top cover for my people saying and going back to my boss and saying, sir, ma'am, 
Yes, we are always going to have more patient safety reports and more concerns brought up in my lane. And what that means is my people feel free to bring problems to me and we're going to address them as best we can to help improve the organization. Yeah, I know that that I totally get your perspective. I know that the biggest problem that people have is when they feel like they're on the receiving end of like a nursing complaint as from a physician perspective, things like that, is that they feel like administration is not taking my side. They're not shutting it down. Why do I have to defend this? So, so I think the, the point, and this is a very natural human response, is the moment we start taking sides, I think, is when we're going to run into problems. And, and that's why I brought up that idea of do we want to be right or do we want to be effective? And once we start thinking about sides, and this can be true, it's probably the funniest when it's like either about like anything someone's really passionate about, whether it be politics or something crazy like nutrition. But the moment that we start taking sides, and what I would try to do in that case is how can we look at this from an organizational perspective, not from a taking sides perspective? Now, what I will say, and maybe this will get to one of the things. I would also not be afraid if I thought that someone was was using it inappropriately, perhaps to get back at someone. I would let them know that. You know, I would also give them the opportunity. But it's not the end of the world. But I would say, hey, this is this is the sense that I'm getting from that. And if that's the case, that's not what I believe this is about. And if you want to come, if you want to address this in a separate venue with me that you may have concerns about, let's do that. Because, hey, I think strategies to improve relationships with your coworkers, that's always an important topic. And that's something I'd always love to discuss. We're always trying to navigate that. We're always trying to get better relationships. So I appreciate that. However, to do it in a professional sense or to use a mechanism that the hospital has in place to do something else, that wouldn't be appropriate. So I don't, I think the other thing is I don't want to give the impression that the only conversations I ever had with people were these happy, you know, conversations. No, no, no. There were some very, very difficult conversations. But I think the art of this is learning how to have difficult conversations in a way that most reasonable people, and again, you can't control everyone. I, I always try to say 99% and 1%, right? But most reasonable people would come out of that conversation coming back and say, hey, Paul handled that in a reasonable way. Most people know when they did something wrong that they did something wrong, and I would let them know that, but yet give them a chance to recover and, you know, make up for that. Yeah, I loved your perspective on the whole idea of these like patient safety reports and this ability to report things is to create a, a culture of communication and safety. And if you widen your net, I mean, if we increase our sensitivity, we're going to try to catch everything, which means we're going to catch some of these things too. And when you're on the receiving end of it, is maybe not necessary to make anything mean anything from it. That's why I kind of neutralize it of saying that if you're in charge and a piece of paper comes across your desk, you have to address it somehow. Uh, we yes. cannot necessarily like, just like you said, if we take sides, then it becomes a problem, even if maybe the side is potentially obvious. Well, and what I would say is the ideal situation is I have a ton of near misses and next to no adverse outcomes. Right. Right. So if I have all this paperwork and I'm seeing a pattern of a number of near misses, it's only a matter of time where that that near miss is no longer a near miss. Mm -hmm. 
if that's fair. Right. So what I, that's what I want. But if I never have those near misses, if those don't get reported, there's no way that that, and it's there, it's a ticking time bomb in a house. You know, it is, there's a pro and, and here's, here's another thing I've all, I've learned almost, and, and I probably learned this mostly through my experience as, as a head of a, you know, risk management committee when there are, you know, when cases go wrong, when, when there are adverse out, I don't think I can think of a time, at least I was involved in a case where there was a malicious provider involved that wanted to do harm to the patient, not once. And I've been doing this for years, right? Almost always, if you look back on these cases, there were a number of little things that went wrong that built up to this. And again, that's the idea. If, if I have these little things that are going wrong and, and heck, it can be even little frustrations that people have. If people are comfortable in bringing those up to me, I can address, my hope is that I can address them before it becomes something catastrophic. That's a great perspective is that, you know, there usually is something behind some of these reports and to give some idea that something is behind them may be preventing something big down the line for protection for everyone. And let me share actually another perspective is, I just thought as, as we're talking. So let's say that that case of where someone's using it to nitpick or damage somebody else in some perceived way. The, the other thing, and this is, I actually don't really care if it's right or wrong. It's just how I choose to live life. I generally don't believe that people are bad people. And so that's a perspective when someone is across from me in my office, I, I, I almost always try to have. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting across in situations like this, whether it be someone is having a problem with someone else, whether it was someone, a provider had an adverse outcome. One of the first things I do, I actually often don't address the issue at hand right away. And I try to get an idea of what's going on in their life. And I can't tell you how many times in the process of doing that, I've realized that people have some other personal struggle going on in their life that they, for whatever reason, have not shared with anyone else and maybe don't want to share with anyone else. But it's it's perhaps bleeding over into what's happening in the hospital, if that makes sense. So I'll just I'll just give a few examples. And someone going through a, a terrible divorce, there's no way that that's not going to impact what happens at your work. But if me as the leader, if, if I don't understand that, if I don't understand what my teammate is going through and what other things could be causing problems, now I'm trying to solve all these other problems that, that aren't there. So a, a nice little saying that I try to remind myself of often is some problems are solutions to deeper problems. And if we don't understand what the true problem is, here I am as a leader, I'm trying to solve these other things. But maybe sometimes, particularly when it's these interpersonal things, sometimes it's because that person's not, not doing okay. And I'll tell you, I've been there in my life. And when, when I'm not doing okay in one part of my life, it's hard to just block that off and, and, and be who we are. I'm sure I've done that and some people haven't opened up and that's fine. That's, that's completely on them. However, I've found almost always when those situations come up, 
and they can acknowledge those situations to me. And then now I have a completely different understanding of what's going on. The concept of kind of hurt people, hurt people, right? Hey, this is not a bad person. This is a hurting person. And maybe if we can address that thing, all these other things that we're trying to fight in the hospital gets better. And so that's another thing I, I think I took a lot of, or let's put it this way. I, I was very cognizant of my role in at least offering help to people that may not be strictly related to what's happening in the workplace and just acknowledging that, hey, if tough things are going on outside of your life or outside of your work life, as long as I know about it, we can we can work on that. There's a lot of things we can do, but if I don't know about it, those things are hard to address. But I think this idea of perhaps recognizing that never assuming that the person across from you is trying to do something bad, but maybe they do have something going on. And when you address whatever that is going on, all of a sudden these problems that you thought you were dealing with, they just go away. Now, again, what I just told you there, Amy, that's going to take a lot of trust. That's not going to happen the moment you walk in the door and you take over a new position. That, that, would probably happen a year into that position when you as a leader have consistently demonstrated to your teammates that you are able to address complaints and address concerns without being punitive in response to them. I mean, what this reminds me of is that, I mean, you do want to address a problem, but trying to figure out what the problem is. And it reminds me of that Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey book of not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. Yes. And so, I mean, a lot of times people think they're getting called to the principal's office to tell them how what they did wrong. And it sounds like from your perspective, no, I just want you to come here so I can understand who who is hurting, who's the hurt person that's hurting someone, you know, and I can understand that that's not going to be very obvious from a piece of paper on a, thir a third party who wasn't there. And if that person has never experienced that before, that's going to be foreign. But the example that you just made, and just the reality is, if we all go through life long enough, we're going to have these hurtful experiences in life. You, you know, we just are. And so that idea of what what happened to you, you know, and and what's what's your story? And and I can tell you, I. This is a little heartbreaking, but I can't tell you how many times, even in these lunch meetings, so not even having an agenda, but one of the first questions I would ask, and again, this is kind of a sixth sense type thing that I learned, but usually one of the first things I'd say is, are you okay? And to the person that is usually answered in this way, yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm doing fine. And usually what I would do is I would ask the question again. And Amy, I can't tell you how many people then I would start to notice things, maybe a little tear welling up in the eye or no longer making eye contact with me. And then I just wait. And that really gave me a perspective of, I think there are a lot more physicians, nurses, medical providers in general that are dealing with things that maybe nobody knows about. And I think there's so much of 
perhaps our persona as providers that we're these perfect, untouchable people that never have any problems in life. And my, well, my own experience, as well as my universal experience as a leader and leading my teammates is most people have things going on in their life. Yeah. And sometimes just acknowledging those things can really go a long way in not only helping them. Well, I would say that maybe even helping them as people, maybe I can tell you, there were times where I could tell they had never told anyone about this before. Maybe because no one ever asked them. Mm -hmm. Maybe because nobody asked if they were okay twice. They asked if they were okay once. And then once the other person recognized, wait, there's something there. Now I'm like, oh gosh, I don't want to open this can of worms. No, let's open that can of worms if you want. Yeah. If you're ready to open that can of worms, let's do it. Because guess what, man? I've been there too. Yeah. You can see it takes two, right? One, they have to acknowledge that there's a can of worms. And the second is they have to be ready to listen to what that can of worms is. And some people just aren't equipped to deal with that. And I think it really just depends on the leader that you have. Well, and I, I think that's also knowing the other person, you, you know, you, you have to recognize that th the person may not be ready. But here's another thing I'll tell you, if they got the sense that I really did care, they may not have said something to me that time, but there were multiple times where they would come back and then I'd see, for example, an appointment on my calendar and they'd come in and they'd say, hey, Paul, remember that time when you asked me if I was okay? Yeah, I really wasn't. And so I really, those were the opportunities. And, and I never, I'll tell you, I've heard this said like, you know, okay, there, there are some things, and I'm sure there are some things that are not suitable for work, but in terms of my teammates' well-being, that's not one of them, you know? And if, if they wanted to come to talk to me about something that's impacting their well-being, I, I think they knew I was there. And it may not have been, like I said, it may not have been that that first time we talked. But I think if nothing, it opened the door, planted a seed that, hey, maybe Paul's willing to listen to this. And maybe it won't. And I don't even know what they're thinking. Is this going to be the end of my career if I tell Paul this? You know, will Paul look down on me? You know, and, and again, uh, often what would happen is after I heard their stories, I would tell, I would tell them some things that, you know, if I, I'd experienced and they're probably like, wow, Paul's way worse off than me. So <laughs> I don't feel so bad now. So let's transition now to your own personal experience of when you wanted to per portray and continue to portray what we think is like the good physician, the one who owns everything and is perfect and persistent and stubborn and knowledgeable and all the things that we think make a good physician. And then you have your own interpersonal struggle where now you have to face, you know, what other people perceive of you at work and, and the desire to portray yourself at work in some ways that are different than your internal struggles. So tell us a little bit about what you experienced in life where you had to sort of confront that aspect. So I think there are two examples of this. One, one was in my career. And so the way that this worked, we've been talking a lot about my time as a CMO. Well, after, or well, I guess in the middle of my tenure as CMO, I was selected to be a commander of a hospital in Europe. And that would be, for those that are not in the military, that would be equivalent to a CEO. 
And what I realized at that time, I was I was 30-something years old, and it was amazing that I never had really thought about what I wanted in life. And that seems so foreign to say that. Like, how can you be in your 30s and never take time to think about, what do I want? Like, what's important to me? And, and don't get me wrong, I was grateful. I certainly had all these amazing opportunities, and in some ways, I was probably being groomed for higher leadership positions, which were externally validating and certainly made me feel good in, in many ways. But I'd never asked to stop myself, is this what I really want? And I remember, well, just to kind of fast forward a little bit, ultimately I, I declined to take that position. And in the military, that's, I, I knew full well that that was a career ender. So I knew that in making this decision to not take this position or decline, as we call it, I was, I was effectively ending my career. And all I can say is the incredible loss of identity that I felt during that time was, I felt I was giving up. I felt in many ways a, a failure. I, I remember even people well-intentioned would, would come up to me and say, how, how can you do this? Like we expected you to, we've been grooming you for this, this, and this. So incredible guilt, shame. And doctors don't give up. Doctors don't give up on things. We, we, we bulldog everything. We figure it out. We, we fix all problems. We, we, anything that's not working for us, we, we make it work. That's what, that's what makes us great. And I think at some point we realize it's those very things that make us great that can also create problems in other areas of my life and or our lives. But here's the good part of that is once I got through that and, and ultimately what it was is I had some family struggles that were happening. And also I didn't remember I told you my goal was to always be the leader I wanted to be. And as I was progressing, I started to realize there are natural constraints in any system, and I'm not all powerful. And quite frankly, I couldn't be the leader that I wanted to be. And then I guess I would say the other part is I certainly was not going to participate in doing things that I did not think were not the best situation for my teammates. And I didn't want to be that leader just to kind of follow the party line. And that's not to say that these were terribly negative things. It's just any huge system such as a hospital or particularly, you know, a government hospital, military hospital. I mean, that's a massive system. Someone at my level is not going to change it. Heck, there are some things that you can't change without congressional approval. So yeah, good luck with that, right? So once I started to come to grips with that, I, I realized that I had to change career paths and essentially let go of the past 10 years of my identity as, as a leader and continuing to head on to you know, higher ranks in, in the military and in medicine. And that was a very, I struggled with that. I struggled with that a lot. The... I mean, it's such a common phenomenon, though. I mean, it really is, is that we think that we know what we want. So therefore, we strive to become that person who could have that. And in the end, I mean, you did. You actually became the leader that you wanted to be. And and 
it's just this struggle that takes a little bit to think about. It's like, we actually don't have to do any more than that. If we are really true to ourselves and saying, yes, I have now become the person that would be able to do this. But once I have arrived, this is not what I thought. And this is not true and unique to myself. I am now out of integrity with myself and therefore I cannot continue. And so it's interesting because it feels like an identity crisis, but what it is, is what we describe as the arrival fallacy. I have arrived to where I'm supposed to be. I expected to feel a certain way. I do not. And I cannot continue because this is now not true to who I was. But it doesn't mean that anything you did before that is wrong. But that's that's the struggle because it feels wrong. We feel like this is what you want. Why aren't you happy? <laughs> and this is a good example of knowing something in your head versus what you feel in your heart. So many of the things that I described were, were my feelings. And even though I'm a very logical person, I, I realized that was not, not the case. I, I want to go back to one thing you said. I, th I think the word integrity is very important. And essentially, that's what it was. And the way that I look at integrity is is... A slightly different word. Well, I think there's is, is alignment. Am mm -hmm. I living my life in alignment with the person I want to be? And that's in all ways, right? And ultimately, that's what it was. And that's why I knew I had to let go. I, I was not able, I did not feel I was able to be the father that I wanted at the time, the husband I, I wanted to be. And, and so I had to let go of something. And the the nice part about that though and again this is this is why i'm saying it's it's those very things you know the persistence the never giving up well yes those are good in in some aspects of our life but letting go is also good and and knowing when to let go particularly when when you learn hey i've arrived and you know what it's okay that this did not turn out exactly how i wanted to be and you're absolutely right I had gotten everything I wanted in the military, everything I wanted, every single aspect of career progression I wanted, and it would have continued, I'm sure of it. But then to step back and say, something's out of alignment here and I need to let go. And the good part about that is now to where I'm at, where I'm well, just I, I read from home. I uh, teach for a major university uh, from my house, which is which is amazing. And I have all the time that I I want with. Well, you always want more time, but I definitely have the time that that I appreciate with with my boys. Like I, I couldn't ask for anything more. But it's incredible that at the time I completely thought that I was giving up everything that I was all about. And that was the furthest thing from the truth. But I can ab absolutely empathize when when people start. They approach these situations. And here's what I would say. I think we know it. We just don't. I, I knew it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But inertia is powerful. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, and, and it's incredible. It's like, Hey, this, this new, new shiny thing came up. And for me, it was always career progression. Like this, this new leadership thing is coming up and, and man, that fed my ego and that, and Oh, maybe I can, I'd even convince myself and I probably could, you know, Oh, you can do so many more good things with this. Yeah. But this is not, I'm not being who I need to be. 
And I think once you really have that, whether it be that tough conversation with yourself or someone who really cares about you, I think it really becomes clear what you need to do. And then it's just taking that step. And, you know, almost universally what I've experienced either from myself or others is there's almost always goodness beyond that. What you thought was, you know, that pinnacle. No, it's, it wasn't that because it's the truth is it's, it's a journey anyway. Yeah, so Martha Beck calls this integrity as opposed to like, you know, the, the, I guess, judgment of it, but integrity means like whole, like if you would want to make sure that your, your plane was an integrity, not falling apart as it goes along. And uh, there's a quote from the, her book, the way of integrity. And I have a summary of the way of integrity on the website. And it says her quote, the problem isn't how hard you are working. It's that you're working on things that aren't right for you. And this may be right for you anymore. Your goals and motivations are not harmonizing with your deepest truth. And I think that's where the problem is, is that we're not in integrity. Our deepest our deepest truth is not aligning with what we're doing anymore. And that is, I think, manifest in lots of different ways. You know, she describes it like the aches and pains and the stress and the, you know, all the things too. It's like, we know, just like you said, we know for a long time that we're not doing that, but we've had, you know, such inertia to do this that it's hard to stop. So this just made me think of something else. So this is obviously one of the more difficult parts of my my job or any leader's job is that sometimes we have to let people go. We have to fire people. And I tell this story not out of being happy that I had to do this by any means, but I'll share it because I think it's relevant to what you said. So I remember each and every one of the five people that I fired and I will tell you that four out of the five people came back years later and thanked me. Interesting. And I think what I recognize that, and this goes back to our discussion, and we didn't use the word, but the idea of whole. If you're not whole, problems are going to pop up in other areas. So if you're you're not whole, problems are going to pop up at work because you're, you're not whole right? That's a really good way to look at kind of like root cause. And that's, I think you described that in a better way that I was trying to describe when we were talking about, you know, how do I deal with some of these conflicts? But that's essentially what I was trying to do. Find out, hey, is this person whole? Are they hurting in some way? Are they, you know, what's incomplete here? But back to that idea of, you know, these people coming back to thank me. One thing I realized was, Many times, and again, it just comes from my idea that I'm not dealing with a bad person, okay? But there are not ideal fits sometimes. So in in a number of the cases, I remember even telling them, like, you know, when you share with me about this position, you know, you don't seem fulfilled. You, you don't seem happy. And there are things that I can do and there are things that I can't do. And I feel like the things that would get you there, I don't have the ability to change. And when we get to that case, my job becomes different now. My job becomes how can I help you get what you want, even if that is not under my leadership. And I'll tell you, I've also used that in a more positive way in the sense that Whenever I met with with, with my teams, one thing I would often share with them, because especially in the military, you're dealing with some very, very loyal people. And that's not to say there aren't loyal people elsewhere, but there's a strong sense of loyalty in the the military. And these are incredible people. I feel honored to have been teammates with them. But I, I, I think the idea 
that they recognized somewhere they were not a good fit either. And instead of saying, hey, you're a bad employee, it's more like this isn't a good fit. If, if you put me in an environment that I'm not going to thrive in, I'm not going to thrive. I mean, it just makes sense. Like if, if I'm not enjoying, if, if these are not the things that, okay, well, guess what? There are plenty of opportunities out there. So I would often tell a lot of my teammates, hey, one of the best days for me is when you come to me and you say, I'm leaving because I found my dream job. Because for me, what I take away from that is as much as I know I'm losing someone great, I also know that maybe I played a small role in helping them go be more fulfilled in, in what they wanted. And this was just a stepping stone as opposed to me trying to be selfish. Of course, I want I want the, the best people on my teams, but it's not about me. Right. And so taking that back to people that, that, that have been fired, I, I think not to each of them at the time, but I think they eventually realized it wasn't that I was bad or they were bad or their colleagues were bad. It was just, it wasn't a good fit for them. And when they had that one to two years of separation, they started to realize, holy cow, like, man, the best that I was, I was let go because now I could go on and do that other thing that, that has come, that opportunity has come up. And one thing I would always, I, I would always tell people, because unfortunately things can get um, pretty contentious when, Obviously, when it comes to something like being, being fired, I would always tell them, hey, I want both of us to handle this situation such that if you come to me for a reference a year from now, I can in good faith write you a great reference. Because just because you're not a great fit for our team, it's, it could be something as simple as this. If you have a basketball team and you already have a great point guard and there's another point guard, well, I don't need another point guard. You know, that's just a simple analogy, right? But if you can look at it as, hey, this may not be the best fit for you. And like I said, I don't have, my N is not very high, but not bad. Four out of five coming back and saying, hey, Paul, I really appreciate the way you handled that. And this ended up being one of the best experiences and one of the best things that ever happened to me for me to find what, they didn't say these words, but essentially what they were saying is for me to be whole. Mm-hmm. 